Good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you today. This morning, we are continuing in the third week of our series, In the Valley, which is an exploration of the hard and difficult places that we sometimes find ourselves in this life that's joined to this attempt to see ourselves reflected in the stories and in the words of Scripture. In the first week of the series, I said that one thing that stands out to us about the Bible is that it not only records difficult experiences, including these moments of suffering and and even moments of profound doubt, but that it identifies those records of those moments as sacred. It identifies them as holy. The hard times, the valleys that we find in the Bible are part of God's holy word to us too. So the question is, what can we learn from the Bible about how to live through hardship in our own lives? How can we allow scripture to both find us where we are and also make where we are sacred? This week, we're going to be talking specifically about the topics of grief and sadness, which are emotions that we often associate with death. But, of course, things that can spread much further than that in our lives, too. One thing that you may not know about me, but which I feel is really important to say here at the start, is that I personally have been particularly and peculiarly untouched by intimate loss in my life. I'm nearly 40 years old, and all four of my biological grandparents are still living. Um, I've never lost a close family member or grieved the death of a close friend or experienced a miscarriage. I've had hardships. All of us have had hardships. But I want to acknowledge my own limits when it comes to this subject that we're talking about today. I'm not an expert. And I know that many of you understand this topic much more deeply and more personally than I do. Um, My prayer, however, today is that the Holy Spirit will make more of my words than my words deserve, and that they will provide empathy and comfort and hope that's far beyond uh, what I have to offer. As we'll talk about in a few minutes, The miracle at the center of Christian faith is built upon God's own desire to find us and know us, even in places that we would assume He could never go. And so I'm trusting Him to find us where we are this morning and to keep finding us day in and day out, wherever tomorrow is going to take us. Our big idea this morning actually rises out of that point. And so I want to get it out here at the beginning so we can focus on it. What I want to argue today is this. I want to argue that grief is the very place we fear no real God can go. But it is also the very place our God does. That grief is the very place that we fear no real God, if they're really God, can follow us, but is also the very same place that our 
unique God does. When it comes to grief and suffering, the most prominent story in Scripture on the subject is found in the Old Testament book of Job. Job is a man who loses almost everything and everyone in his life in this one single tragic day through no sin and no fault of his own. And then in the wake of that disaster, Job's friends, these three guys, show up and rather than offering him comfort or even commiserating with him in his suffering, these three friends instead take turns trying to explain away Job's anger and his frustration. I, I imagine, if we're honest, that most of us have been in this position, either on one side of it or on the other. And we know that words that seek to explain or fix grief are words that almost always inflict more pain than they soothe. But in any case, in chapter 11 of the book of Job, this man named Zophar speaks, and he tells Job that given what he sees as Job's impudence in daring to complain to God, that Job probably deserved even worse from God than what he got. He calls Job a babbler, and he says that if God actually spoke to him, God would tell Job that he has, quote, exacted of you less than your guilt deserves. It's, it's not the kindest thing to say, given the circumstances. And Job then replies to Zophar, by saying that he has as much wisdom as Zophar does or as anyone else does. And what Job perceives in the midst of his grief is this. He says, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? If a man dies, shall he live again? Job says that what makes human beings different so much more different than the rest of nature, is our finitude, our inability to escape not just the eventuality of death, but the ignorance and the blindness that comes with it. At the end of chapter 14, Job says this. He says, But the mountain falls, and crumbles away, and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones, the torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you, God, destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain 
of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. What Job points out to his friend Zophar is that the real terror at the heart of being human, the real horror of grief, is that we are ignorant. We don't get to live forever. We don't get to understand why things happen or what will happen one day when we're gone. If our children come to honor, will we know? If they're disgraced, will we see it? Can any of us really understand the pain of anyone other than ourselves? Can we really understand it? Can we even understand our own pain if we can't put that knowledge in comparison or set it next to something else or someone else's experience? If death is the end, then that means that everything becomes unknowable. We're talking this morning about grief, and I think that we might define grief not just as the experience of losing someone or something close to us, important to us, but also as an encounter with the limits of ourselves as human beings. When someone that we love passes away, our knowledge of them, our relationship with them, which is the means that we have for knowing them deeper and deeper, that relationship is cut off. It's not just about not knowing where they are now or if they still are now. It's also the loss of just simply not knowing them anymore at all. We grieve the loss of us with them. And this, I think, is why sometimes the hopes that we have for eternity, for heaven, don't always offer us full comfort when we're grieving. Whether it's for a little while or for forever, death creates ignorance. Death cuts us off. And death feels wrong because of this. If it is an echo of God within us that we love other people, which is what I believe, that, that we love people because we are resonating with something about who God is and how God has made us. If it is an echo of God within us that we love people, that we hunger to know them more, then how can it be that the natural order of things. How can it be that the world that God created interrupts that love so abruptly, that it can interrupt that love so completely? It's cheap to say that it feels unfair, but that's often the thing we most feel like saying, isn't it? And so maybe, maybe when we say that's unfair, maybe we're not altogether wrong. Maybe there's truth in it. So, what I'm saying is this, that if death is this terrible blindness, and if grief 
is this cutting off of love and knowledge. And the question is, what can God, if he's God, possibly have to say about it? What can God know of death, of grief, of being cut off from anything? If you're listening today and you are in the midst of grief, as, as many of us are, is this your question right now too? Where is God here? Where is God here? If so, Job wrestles with this question too. And we know this because Job's words wrestling with it are Scripture, even in their grief. And what Job says is this. He says that God destroys the hope of man, not out of meanness or vindictiveness, but because God is fundamentally different than we are. Specifically, God is eternal which means that God prevails against us the same way that water prevails against stone, Job says. And that is that water keeps coming forever. There's no end to it, but the stone that that water hits wears out and dissolves over time. Maybe the water doesn't mean to destroy the stone, but it's refreshment. It's, it's the fact that it never runs out separates it from the thing that it's wearing down, which is defined in some ways by how it wears out. Which means that, according to Job here, perhaps the real tragedy of mortality, the real tragedy of death, is that it's the one thing, it's the one thing that an eternal God cannot do. It's the one thing that an eternal God can't know. And so I wonder if grief is lonely because it follows the loss of someone we love and because it is an experience that our God, if he is really God, doesn't seem to be able to share with us. So, so this is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves alone in a godless grief. The poet Emily Dickinson wrote frequently about death, but the poem of hers that best addresses this very problem is one titled, I Know That He Exists. And it goes, it goes like this. I know that he exists somewhere in silence. He has hid his rare life from our gross eyes. Tis an instant's play, tis a fond ambush just to make bliss earn her own surprise. But should the play prove piercing earnest, should the glee glaze in death's stiff stare, would not the fun look too expensive? Would not the jest have crawled too far? I'm going to leave that on the screen for us so that you can read it again while I talk for a moment. What I think Dickinson is saying is that 
There really is joy, even bliss, in this game of hide-and-seek that God seems to be playing with us. She says that she knows that God exists, hidden from our eyes, and in an instant's play, in a fond ambush, we can sometimes find Him in the world. And when that happens, when we find God, just like in a game of hide-and-seek, this is a great and fun and kind of wonderful thing. But in the third stanza, Dickinson says that what makes this game, this play, piercingly earnest or dangerous and serious is that our eyes can glaze over. Our eyes can close as we die before we ever find Him. We are limited in our time on this earth. And what Dickinson considers here is that if an eternal God has set up a game of hide-and-seek with His finite creation, with eternity at stake, isn't that a kind of cruelty? She writes, Would not the fun look too expensive? Would not the jest or the game have crawled too far? The tension between the God who cannot die and people who can die throws so much of our faith into turmoil. Grief throws us into turmoil. Whether he is indifferent to the differences between us, as Job suggests when he says that God is the rain and we are the mountains, or naive to the difference between us, as Dickinson suggests when she says that God is the eternal child hiding from mortal seekers. The point in both cases is that in death, what we're afraid of, the root of our grief, is that we are all alone here. That it's a limit we can't go past, one we can't share with those who miss us, one where God himself can bring no comfort. But then God does something unexpected, right? Long after the time of Job, outside the city walls of Jerusalem in the first century, God in the flesh actually does die. More than that, God the Father grieves His dead Son. More than that, there are Jesus' words on the cross as he cries out in abandonment, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means in the Jesus story, the God who cannot know death, the God who cannot know grief, the, the God who cannot be alone, dies and grieves and is forsaken. So why? What good could ever come from such suffering, from any suffering? What God, if He really is God, could allow something like this to happen? 
I said at the beginning today that the big idea is that grief is the very place we fear no real God can follow us, but it is also the very place our God does. And my point is not that Jesus' death on the cross fixes our grief or our sadness. It doesn't. It doesn't. The cross doesn't mean that we should all be happy or that we should never feel pain again. What happens on the cross is that God identifies with where we are, with where Job once was, with the fullness of himself. When we grieve, we have divine company. God, because he is God, because he is love incarnate, has chosen solidarity and belonging with us. If you're grieving, you don't need to stop grieving on God's account. You don't need to rush past what you're feeling or just forget about it. You can let all of it happen. And you can do this knowing that you are absolutely, fundamentally, eternally, and cosmically not alone in it. That's the good news of the cross and all its scandal and all its horror. God chooses to understand us in the darkest place that we can ever go. And once there with us, he sits with us in it through the night, through the next day. And then we attest as Christians, he makes a miracle happen. In the book of Job, Job says, But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? If a man dies, shall he live again? And Job's questions here are rhetorical, right? In that he's trying to make the point that the awful thing about death is that it is final in its ignorance. But of, co of course, Job only has a part of the story. In fact, the placement of Job's frustrations in the words of Holy Scripture suggests, I feel, that Job's questions are justified in demanding that one day they find an answer. And so, if we believe, as Christians have believed for 2,000 years, that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead after being crucified on the cross, we should look at that miracle with Job's despair in mind and wonder how does resurrection address such grief? What does a risen Jesus mean for such sadness? I think the answer is that it means that whatever it is that death breaks is not broken forever. Whatever 
ignorance death creates cannot be permanent. Whatever else it means, a dead Jesus who lives again proves that there is more. I think God meets us in our grief and dwells with us there. And I also think that through our grief, Jesus leads us to a single, meaningful, and even a healing hope. God's love is not finished with us. It's not finished with any of us. And I think what Jesus' resurrection proves is that nothing, nothing is capable of standing forever in that love's way. So what can we do with grief? What can we do from grief? After all, the risen Jesus has specifically commissioned us, his church, to follow his example. And this is an example that includes taking up our own crosses and following him into suffering and into hardship. But I think perhaps it can be helpful in a week like this one and in a series like this one to see that call to take up our cross, not from our own perspective, focusing on how we might be suffering, but from a divine perspective where suffering is something that we step into in the lives of others. In his second letter to the churches in Corinth, the Apostle Paul says this pretty amazing thing. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Because we are not alone in our grief, we can pass on the comfort that we receive into the lives of others. We're not just experienced in suffering, which is how it can feel. We're trained firsthand in being faithful company to our neighbors. And when this happens, this isn't just like a passing on of cosmic hope, like in a game of telephone where the answer to all questions anybody could ever ask is just to trust in Jesus and inherit eternal life. What's happening, what's happening is, is in this moment there is a recognition that as recipients of eternal life ourselves, we can dwell in the depths with other people, trusting that even in that darkness, it's not the end for any of us. Our grief can teach us, our grief can equip us, if we allow it to, to do that work. Our faith as Christians can turn us into candles in the darkness for others, not just trying to pull them out of where they are, but bringing light to them 
where they sit. Perhaps that work, that light bringing work, can start for you this week. If you can take a moment today to really look around at the people that God has placed in your life and ask who in your family is grieving right now? Who in your workplace is grieving right now? Which of your neighbors are grieving right now? Because someone is. And if no answer is coming to mind when you wonder that, then there's kind of a step zero for you to take this morning, and it's this. You need to reach out and ask people questions. You need to ask people questions. To be truly curious about others, not so that you can preach at them in a little while, but so you can better understand them for their own sakes. If you are looking for a concrete action step, a practice that you can engage in this week, this morning, then this is it. I want you to ask people in your life five questions this week that you don't already know the answer to. Just five. Five questions that you don't already know the answer to. And if you do that, it's going to help you really get to know them and to build the foundations for a relationship where you can be a meaningful support to them in a time of trouble. And then, if you do know somebody who is grieving, then the challenge for you this week is to ask to sit with them. To ask to sit with them. To be a person of hope, not because you're trying to drag them away from where they are, but because following a God who has beaten death gives you the courage and the hope to voluntarily sit in a place of grief in a valley, a place that no one, no one but a loving God would choose to go. You cannot predict what kind of impact an act of real sympathy in the life of somebody else can have. Truly you can. And then finally, if you're listening this morning and you're still in the depths of your own valley today, know that if you're listening to this, then you are a part of this church community. And it is not unfair to ask any one of us to come sit with you. My friend Isaac often says that a burden shared is half a burden and a joy shared is twice the joy. That might be a bit cheesy, but it's also true. So let us share your burden with you so that your load can be lightened. And then in time when joy creeps back in again. That joy can flourish and multiply in all of our lives because of your courage in asking for company. No matter where you are, no matter which of these steps applies or doesn't apply to you, the, the thing I want to close by saying is this. Let's love one another, friends. Let's love one another as we have been dearly and intimately loved by God. Grief is important. 
but grief is not the end. I'll pray for us. God, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for finding us in desolate places. Thank you for keeping us company when we're hurting. God, help us to see you in those moments. Help us to feel the relief of your company with us. And God, show us in time how to go and do likewise in the lives of others. Help us to be people of comfort. Train us to be people of comfort that we might better imitate you. And through us, people will gain a clearer glimpse themselves of who you are. We love you, God, and we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for the work that we're called to. We just thank you for being who you are. In your son's name, amen.